So, good afternoon, good day, good morning, hello, it's Linda here and Michael and we are so happy to welcome you to episode nine of our series on the Grand Tour, the Grand Tour podcast, but also it's taking us, we're both very interested avid art historians and we're both very keen to yeah maybe sometimes take a side a sidebar a side route on our grand tour so today we're leaving we're going to we're, we're basing ourselves in Florence we are with our milordi who've arrived with great fanfare and excitement um, into the main um, you know Piazza Piazzale Romana in this, the beginning the entrance to Florence into the wall town they're waiting to go in but before we do that and get set up we're actually going to take a day out aren't we Michael and I think we're going to head to uh, we're going to retrace the steps uh, and rediscover uh, San Gimignano and then maybe another day tour to Siena today so we're expanding our horizons and in fact San Gimignano a very medieval city something that has great Etruscan roots is is a is a it was rediscovered by the Gran Turisti and in fact they had a great fondness for the wine that came from that region so it became very familiar territory especially when they wanted to kind of head off and collect and gather some of those great demijohns and enjoy themselves and you know look to the summer as you know as as part of the pleasures of their grand tour so essentially you're very welcome to this and we're going to retrace the the footsteps of these mainly young men fewer of them women between the 17th and the 19th century and this journey time to San Gimignano today. Well I spent a few days in San Gimignano, Siena and Florence with the Asian chapter of the Patrons of the Arts in the Vatican Museums and the Patrons is a group uh, which was founded about 40 years ago, 39 years ago this year. Next year is the 40th anniversary. And the patrons support the restoration of works of art which are so costly that the Vatican cannot afford to do anything with them. I'm thinking of the great frescoes, let's say the Sistine Chapel and many other places which need to have work done. So the the Vatican won't put the money into it nowadays. So these philanthropists, the patrons, come to the rescue Uh, It's open to everybody in the world and each year a chapter, usually a regional chapter, and that's why I was with the the regional chapter of Asia, which is only about six years old, um, they're invited to come to Rome for a week to see where their money's going and then then they can take a side trip. So this year the side trip was up to Tuscany. Ah, and so where did you first visit in Tuscany? Well, the patrons first spent a couple of days relaxing in a Tuscan vineyard before travelling up to San Gimignano, where I met them on... uh, I arrived in Italy on Saturday night, so Sunday morning I met them. It was boiling hot. (laughs) All I can remember is it was so hot that day. But honestly, San Gimignano, which I've been to scores of times, it's one of the most atmospheric places in Tuscany and understandably attracts tourists like bees to the honeypot. So you and I both accompany students on field trips from time to time. And I think it's important to set the scene. Uh, so as I had a week with with uh, the patrons, I layered knowledge every day so that the visitors would not be overburdened with dates, facts and figures, but it would, if you like, gradually build up like layers of varnish or layers of paint and give you an idea of what medieval San Gimignano was like. 
Yes, so San Gimignano, and it belies my own kind of more archaic interests, it was originally an Etruscan and then a Roman settlement, and it was founded on a hill. It's about 334 metres above sea level. Over time, it became a feudal domain, in fact, of the bishops of Volterra. The Etruscans were an extraordinary group living in this whole area, a kind of a, a, a series of city-states. Vei was their capital. Volterra was quite was was probably the next largest of these, and those city states emerged later during this after this period of time in San Gimignano. It, you know, has this sense of continuity about it, a feudal domain gaining independence in 1199, and the town retains that ancient layout. It was always very much on the pilgrimage routes, uh, the Via Francigena, north uh, to south. And by the 14th century, you know, it was it was well, uh, it was very much a, a, a noble establishment. There were many noble families, the upper middle class merchants, merchants were uh, living there. And rather than building uh, outwards, they built upwards. And this is, there was probably as many as 72 tower houses which occupied the wa- within the walls of this uh, small citadel. And each of these tower houses, one more tall than the next to the Torre Grossa, which is indeed the tallest of these, 52 metres high. These were symbols of wealth and power of each of these noble families. And it is quite a sight, you know, at the top of the hill, there are two main squares, the Piazza della Cisterna and there's the Piazza del Duomo. And they're absolutely the centre of this, as, as Michael has said, this kind of honey trap. It's such a busy bee place, uh, full of people visiting now. But it always was and it was attractive on the skyline as these towers rise one kind of vying with the other and right next to the Palazzo della Podesta is where the Torre Grossa is and it was the symbol of civic power in San Gimignano. Um, it took some some time to build but it was inaugurated actually four months after. So interesting. Dante Alighieri uh, visited the city and uh, it was launched and dedicated August 21, 1300. So this was the tower became the symbol of San Gimignano. It was a watchtower. It also had a bell. It was a civil tower. So we're quite familiar with these kinds of uh, monastic towers in Ireland, but here they really had a kind of military and and an important function. As Michael is going to explain, he's very interested and uh, keen to talk about waves of plague. 1353, uh, the town underwent a plague and very quickly became uh, downgraded under Florentine control. And it's not, you know, it, it falls by the wayside, really. There wasn't so much urban renewal during this late Middle Ages and it's not until uh, the Vernaccia, this wonderful wine that's rediscovered or discovered by our Grand Tour travellers from the 17th and 18th century, it kind of comes back into view again. Well, yes, uh, maybe it's not quite fair to say that I'm interested in place, but it's a terribly important date around the uh, 13, late 40s to 51 and that's the period that we call the Black Death. And that really explains the whole history of Tuscany, but actually uh, explains the whole history of Northern Europe, Western Europe at that time, because it's estimated that anything between 75 million and 200 million people died at that time. And we don't have census forms for that period. So we've really got to just make a wild guess. But when we were on our tour with the patrons from Asia, 
of the Vatican Museums, our visit uh, began in the town square where I was able to explain that the ancient town founded by the Etruscans, as you say, and later became a Roman colony, owed its initial success to two wells because this wasn't a, a city near a river like Florence. It wasn't a place where we could uh, have anything that would help us to navigate our way around. This was up on a, on a hilltop. So the only way you could survive was maybe if you could have um, a well so you could dig your water. By the Middle Ages, San Gimignano was on the main pilgrim route, as you say, uh, along the Via Aurelia, which joined Rome to France. And it was an also it was an important producer of saffron, a popular spice. And remember, in those days, there was no refrigeration. And so food went off within a day or two, especially in, in the hot weather in the summer. So herbs and spices were essential to give food some taste, even when it had begun to rot. I hope that's not too graphic. But the, the well was an interesting place to point out how the Black Death arrived in the late 1340s in Italy, decimating the population. And we long thought that the pestilence was borne by rodents which arrived on ships from the Orient. But in fact, recent studies in the past couple of years indicate that the plague first originated in Kazakhstan or we'll say Central Asia, where archaeologists discovered traces of a bacterial disease in the teeth of mid 14th century skeletons. So certainly rats played their part in spreading the disease, or more precisely, I should say, the, the fleas in their coats. The dying rats also went in search of water, and of course, they found it in the cistern. So as they died and their bodies decomposed, that led to further infections. So as the rats were dying, <laughs> I know this sounds pretty gruesome, but as they were dying, uh, they were rotting, and the people gathering around the wells were dropping their pail into the uh, into the cistern to quench their thirst, little knowing that the polluted water contributed also to their own rapid death. But as I was up early that morning, I went to the church of um, of the of the cathedral. Uh, when there was nobody around. It's it's a beautiful church. I really love it. And there's a wonderful uh, series of frescoes um, painted there, all talking about the creation of the world and uh, the life of Christ, etc. But unfortunately, there was little time for me to admire the church before First Holy Communions began. It was a Sunday morning. And as I was leaving, the custodian introduced me, a lovely custodian, in fact, introduced me to the parish priest, who was a young young man in a polo shirt and shorts. And I was fascinated to see that he had a tattoo on his leg, um, which I've never seen before. And I was also fascinated to see he was so casually dressed, uh, just in advance of the hordes of uh, very style, stylish Italians descending on the church with their beautifully decked out children for First Total Communion. But he gave me a great welcome, and because it was Trinity Sunday, um, he asked about St. Patrick, and is it true that St. Patrick used the shamrock, the three-leaved shamrock, to explain the Trinity? So I think I was, I'm not sure if I was right or wrong. But that very week, Pope Francis had a go at priests in Sicily who wear lace albs as part of the, the old-fashioned liturgical dress, which was popular prior to the Second Vatican Council. And Pope Francis, uh, such a plain speaker, said, even if your grandmother made the lace alb, just keep it for special occasions. Um, so he, you know, he, he insulted, I think, a lot of grandmothers. And I don't think that's really what uh, somebody like that should 
to be saying. But anyway, nevertheless, uh, I'd say if he had his way, he'd probably whitewash all the frescoes off the walls of the churches. So when you see priests on the one hand who wear the traditional garments and another priest who wears shorts and carries a tattoo, you can see there's a pretty wide divergence. But anyway, going back to vesture, the week we spent in Tuscany really emphasised the importance of garments in medieval society. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking about that in our next episode. But I wanted to bring you down to the Church of Sant'Agostino because there's a magnificent set of frescoes by Benozzo Gozzoli, who's very active in San Gimignano in the middle of the 15th century. And uh, when I visited Sant'Agostino, I saw a magnificent cycle which he painted in the choir area behind the high altar. And that's a set of six monumental frescoes, three enormous frescoed panels rising on each side. So it's slightly obliterated by the, 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 the high altar, if you like. The church was constructed around 1280, but the main decoration is thanks to an Augustinian friar, uh, Fra Domenico Strambi. And Bonozzo Gozzoli, one of the most favoured artists working for the Medici, and remember he painted the three walls of Cosimo de' Medici's house chapel with scenes of the adoration of the Magi. So Gozzoli fled Florence in 1464 at the outbreak of another dose of pestilence which broke out in the city. And so he took refuge in San Gimignano and he was very, he was hoping that he'd be safer there, but he was wrong because many citizens contracted the plague and died from it. But the panels of his great work, The Life of St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, he was the one who, the famous saint who prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not quite yet. He, Augustine had had a wild childhood and in early adulthood before he decided to become a Christian and ultimately wound up as a bishop and centuries later was declared a doctor of the church. He'd a child uh, without being married to the mother, which in those days was a big no-no. And uh, this this great cycle is to inspire people uh, to, to follow the, the life and the teachings of Augustine. So, Bernardo Gozzoli survived the plague and he went on then to paint another wonderful fresco of St. Sebastian, who's a 4th century Roman soldier who's, ex- who's executed by the Emperor Diocletian for his Christian faith. And curiously, although many Renaissance depictions show a naked Sebastian shot through with arrows, that's the means by which he was executed according to Roman rule. Gozzoli's St. Sebastian instead sports a rather splendid blue pleated tunic with a purple mantle intertwined with gold on his shoulders. And that fresco is articulated on three levels. Closest to the viewer, we'll see the people of the town crowding around the saint, kneeling in supplication with hands joined and obviously praying for his, his help. And on the second level, we see a number of angels breaking the arrows, thus rendering them harmless and throwing them to the ground. And then two angels approach Sebastian holding a crown, a crown of martyrdom, and hover over his head. One angel holds a palm branch that indicates that Sebastian was a martyr for his Christian faith. And on the third, thus the highest level from the, from the ground, from the viewer, the uppermost level, God the Father listens to Jesus and Mary, who also intercede for the end of the plague. And Jesus then points to his wound in his side caused by the spear thrust into his chest following his death on the cross. 
And then Mary on the other side points to her breasts, which provided milk for the infant Jesus. And she's clearly calling in her part of the bargain. And they reckon that the fresco was probably commissioned by the Augustinians as an ex voto, that is, in the fulfilment of a vow, a thanksgiving for being saved. It's quite common, perhaps still is, the idea of bargaining with God. So if the plague receded, then they were able to move forward into the future. Um, indeed, as I say, Michael, great uh, information about the plague. I had my fingers in my ears about those rodents and the wells. Um, but incidentally, to add to that, uh, these wonderful visuals, another famous Augustinian friar, Martin Luther, made a similar vow. Caught in a thunderstorm, he took refuge and vowed to God that if he survived the tempest, he would abandon a career in law and become a friar instead. And that thunderstorm indirectly led to the publication of the 95 Theses uh, at Wittenberg in October 1517, which in itself was such a monumental occasion and the launch of the Reformation, which led to 30 years, uh, the Thirty Years' War and of course, redrew, redrew the map of Europe as we know it. And it is curious to recall our grand tourists in San Gimignano and in these places. And remember, they, they didn't view themselves as tourists. They, they knew they were kind of on an educational journey. In many cases, majority would have been Protestants. They were the recent ancestors converted from Catholicism to this Reformed Church. And the Reformed Church is started by those such as Martin Luther, the Calvinists like John Calvin, John Knox, of course. And so indeed, viewing many of these artworks, such as these religious images that, Michael, you've been describing, they would have been seen more, they would have to kind of view them in an artistic terms uh, rather than with the, the kind of religious effect or the religious depictions and the, the theories behind those. Catholics, on the other hand, couldn't take up a seat in Parliament. Those, the Catholic milordies were much more avid collections of classical antiquities. So it tended to kind of balance out. Well, at this stage, I think we've probably exhausted San Gimignano, but I, I really would recommend it as a wonderful place to see. And maybe it's time for us to think about heading off to Siena. So, Arrivederci, I would say. We're going to head off and for our next episode, have another day trip, another outing to the wonderful Siena to consider the Palio and all sorts of excitements that those Milordis kind of came across uh, on their journeys uh, from Florence during this exciting time. Very good. Okay, until the next time. Okay, ciao, 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 ciao. <laughs>